Hello and welcome back to Footprints. It's our 20th episode and this month we're exploring the world of farming. And as usual, there's some real treats coming up for you. We'll visit an alpaca farm within 10 minutes walk of the city centre. We'll hear about how farming has changed over the years and what we can expect now. And we'll meet a man who knows the difference between a brown snout, a slackney girdle and the Ten Commandments. Yes, you guessed it, it's cider apples. But this episode is going out during Bathscape's highly popular annual walking festival. So I tracked down Lucy on a gorgeous sunny day in the park to find out what we can expect this year. Oh, we've got lots new this year, very excitingly. We've started some Nordic walking taster sessions. Nordic walking is really popular, isn't it? And you sort of strap yourself into your poles, is that right? Yeah, it's a sort of full body workout, really, whilst being outside in a park in, in nature. So it's it's different to going to the gym, but it works your arms and it's it's good for people who maybe have got some health problems or some mobility issues that they're recovering from or for just people that want a good old workout. Uh, what else have we got? We've got a series of fantastic walks from Kilter Theatre all about climate change. It's helping young people, families and other people do something positive about any kind of anxieties they might have around climate change and about doing something positive. They're walk shops. So. Walk shops. Oh, I like that word. Yeah. We must use that in some way. We remember Kilter Theatre were on a January podcast, weren't they? Because they did the, uh, the wassailing yes. and, and got all the kids to yeah. hang toast in the trees. Yeah. And also new for this year, your park, Bristol and Bath, are doing some sensory walks in Sydney Gardens. So they've put those together with scents and they're very accessible, wheelchair friendly, all the rest of it. And um, they're a nice sensory walk around the beautiful newly restored Sydney Gardens. Fabulous. Sounds good. And tell us the dates. When, when can people start? When does it start? Festival this year is 9th to the 24th of September. As usual, finishing with the grand finale, the Circuit of Bath Walk. 20 miler sponsored walk for Julian House, well known to this podcast. Well known to this podcast and people don't have to walk the whole 20 miles because there are buses laid on, which is fantastic. You can just walk a section of it or two and end up at the Angelfish and have a nice cup of tea. Sounds fantastic. And how are you, Lucy, organising it all? I'm very well. I've worked out that this is my seventh walking festival now and I still love it just as much as I did for the first one. 50 people, over 50 people give us their time to lead the walks. Our phenomenal, experienced expertise of the of the volunteers. And also I was looking back at the evaluation from last year and people who come on the walk say some really nice things. You know, you can get into the countryside in 15 minutes, as we always say, from the centre of Bath. And last year somebody told us about how coming on some of the walks helped her husband, who's recovering from chemo, judge his energy and ability to to walk further. Other people tell us that they've lived in Bath for 30 years and still learn something new when they come on one of our walks. And it's really, it's just really lovely to to hear all of those things from, from the people who come on the walks as well. We've got 82 walks, I think, this year. 80 of them very easy to get to by public transport. 18 of them specifically for families. Yeah, lots and lot, lots of um, more wheelchair accessible ones than ever before. Fabulous. So everybody sign up, join in and have a great time. And thanks so much, Lucy, for organising it for us all. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much to Lucy. There's still time to sign up for the Julian House Fundraiser Circuit of Bath on Sunday the 24th of September. 
Okay, so this episode is about farming, so let's start with a farmer. Bob Honey owns Upper Midford Farm. I met him in his garden and started by asking him what sort of animals he keeps there. Uh, we've got uh, pedigree Herefords. Um, I have a partnership with uh, a young lad. Um, my wife and I uh, agreed this with his family six, seven years ago. He was 13 at the time and was a very enterprising young man. And uh, I contacted his father who phoned me within a quarter of an hour and said, can we talk? So the two families got together and chatted and um, we formed a landlord-tenant partnership and um, it's gone very successfully. His knowledge of pedigree livestock, of cattle and of sheep is extraordinary. During this time he's been to Harper Adams University and has just graduated with a first class degree, agricultural degree, and he's now working for Genus, the cattle breeding company. As I did in my uh, early working life, he has an everyday job uh, which he intends to build as a career and he's also farming in the evenings and weekends which is exactly what I did. And do you love it? I mean is that your oh, passion? Love oh love it, always have done. I was always farming, um, uh, my, uh, I was a strange family, uh, my father uh, was a peasant's son, I mean literally peasants from Cornwall and he was one of those extraordinary peasant sons in the 30s that actually went to university. He met my mother there, who was from middle-class family in Marlborough, and um, they made a very successful marriage because there were eight of us, and they did well in their lives. Mother had quite a writing career. She used to write for the Farmer's Weekly, something called Babs Honey's Diary, that for the whole of the 60s and the early 70s was in every fortnight in the Farmer's Weekly and was read by hundreds of thousands. It was extraordinarily popular. Many listeners may remember her. So you've got Herefords now. Tell me about them. When we started, we just got some cattle to fill the place, fattening beef cattle. Will already had some very high quality Hereford cows. I think he had three cows uh, and so therefore we bought Herefords to just complete it and um, it very very quickly is obvious that we were never going to make a profit out of trying to sell beef and so it was Will that pointed out that maybe breeding uh, selling breeding stock uh, at a higher value if we can sell a bull for 5,000 guineas instead of a beef animal for 1,400 pounds at about the same age, even in fact, even slightly younger. Immediately, that makes sense. But we can't sell every bull at 5,000 guineas. And um, not all the stock are bulls, but we can sell some heifers at um, a premium price because the genetics are so high. You just said the word guineas. Guineas are still used. We've got a bull going up to the um, bull sale in Shrewsbury in a fortnight's time, and he'll be sold in guineas. And the old idea is that the pounds come back to the farmer or the, the vendor, and the, the shilling or five pence goes to the auctioneer. So it's an easy way of calculating the commission. And what are you looking for when you want to sell a bull? What's going to provide higher value? Hereford's got a wonderful reputation for being calm, easily managed cattle. They're not necessarily very nice to each other, which is quite extraordinary. They, they, they have a very strong hierarchy, but they're easy to manage, they're lovely to manage, 
so temperament is important. It's not the most important, but we wouldn't keep anything that showed an aggressive manner. We just wouldn't want to breed from that, and nor should any other uh, breeder. Its growth rate, its markings, its strong feet and legs, uh, muscling. There's so many factors, and it might be that we, uh, when we get our next stock bull, it might be that Will realises that our heifers could just do with a bit of an improvement on this factor or that factor, and his choice of bull will dictate uh, which the strongest one is. Might not be the best bull in the sale, but it's strongest on that particular factor. So you've got your prized bull. So normally in a field you might see a sign saying beware of the bull, but you've got more than one in a field, is that right? No, we've got one stock bull. His name's Ned. I can't remember what his pedigree name is, but to us he's Ned. He's a lovely, calm chap, um, big. Unfortunately, uh, we can't keep a bull, our stock bull, for very long because, of course, his own daughters will be coming forward. In a big herd, you can probably afford to have a few bulls around, and so therefore uh, you can do that. We can't, not on our numbers. So we'll be finding a new home for him. He'll sell very well because he's such a good bull, and we'll buy a new one from somewhere else. To bring in new genetics. Yes. So uh, it's just luck. I mean, we, we have um, there's 14 calves out there, of whom this year only three are bulls, that's how it goes. There's some very good heifers. One of the, uh, the first heifer calf actually won first prize on her first trip out, which was to the Froome Cheese Show last week. Beautiful little animal called Rita. And uh, some of them will be show animals. Some will be good commercial breeding stock. One or two of them will be beef, but uh, mostly will be breeding. So apart from your pedigree Herefords, I know that you also have an apple orchard. When I sold my business and my daughter's children became school age, I suppose we were both looking for something to do. And I always loved orchards and um, chatting to Julian Templey, the famous cider maker from Barrow Hill, who um, also has the apple brandy, the Somerset apple brandy, which, if you don't know it, knocks the spots off most Calvados. It's wonderful. I, 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 Accept his invitation when I was down there buying cider and brandy to have a look round his orchards, thinking it would only take half an hour. But two and a half, three hours later, I came home determined to plant an orchard. So I did that with just enough apples to produce 7,000 litres, which is the magic figure. You don't pay duty on 7,000 litres, but you pay full duty if you go to 7,001. So we just stayed at 7,000 litres for a while, selling very successfully to local pubs, and then we decided to increase. We, we said, let's double. So we went to 15,000 litres, and we're just beginning to clean the equipment, and the chap that we were buying apples, because our orchard at this stage was still very, very young. And um, he phoned me one day and he said, I've just been offered a load of apples from Glastonbury Abbey. Would you be interested? I thought, well, we've got to, haven't we? Absolutely got to. So we agreed and that. So we went suddenly from 7,000 to 20,000 and we sold all of that the following season. Uh, this is proper cider. I should think it's probably 95% of the cider that's drunk in this country is actually made from apple juice concentrate. 
is never seen an apple itself. It's apple juice concentrate, very often from China or, or Turkey. And it's, it's fermented very quickly and then watered down to the correct percentage alcohol. And they add malic acid and so on just to make it and, and, and still call it cider. It doesn't seem quite right. Whereas we'll press the apples, ferment it naturally at ambient temperature and our cider won't we won't begin to drink the new season cider till about April or May when we feel it's matured enough and that's proper craft cider. Are they apples you could eat? Traditional Somerset or West Country bittersweet has got the right mix of sweetness of sugars and of tannin the East Country ciders and ciders you'd make from just ordinary culinary apples don't have that bitterness and they're just not the same. Most ciders are a blend rather than a single variety. I know we go for single varieties with wine in the main, but with ciders it does pay to blend. And um, this mix of acidity and, and tannin, uh, we will use a small amount of brown. If brownies uh, are offered, and a few people around here hate to see the waste, to see their garden littered with apples. And they bring them along and we press them. And um, as long as there's not too many, they give just a little bit more bite to the, to the cider. Tell me the year of the apple, the year in the life of an apple. Uh, let's start from January the 1st. The, the trees are dormant. It is one of the times to prune. It comes on through. We watch the, the, the orchards come into blossom, which is absolutely wonderful. And, and then we watch for the, the fruit begin to set. Then by June, there's sometimes something called June drop. If the tree decides it's been a bit ambitious, it will drop sort of just pea-sized uh, or bean-sized apples and drop them so it can concentrate on the ones it keeps. Different varieties will mature at different times. And with a cider apple, you do not pick from the tree. You want it to maximise its sugar production. If you pick from the tree, uh, some of the starches have not uh, converted to sugars. When they drop, more of the starches converted to sugars, and if they're left a bit longer, even more have dropped. Proper cider, you do not add sugar. The percent alcohol is entirely dictated by the percentage of sugars in the apples, and ours normally works between six and six and a half percent. So there we are, so the apples are now on the ground, left there a little bit. Commercial orchards will shake the trees, and then they're milled, because you can't press a whole apple. What's involved in milling? I only know that in terms of flour. In the smallest sense, it would be, it's a cheese grater, in effect, a mechanical, electrically driven cheese grater. And that will chop the apples into tiny little chips, and then they can be pressed. Forget about uh, treading the apples like you do with grapes. That wouldn't do it. And then they go to the press. The original ones would use straw to form a cheese. You'd put a layer of straw within um, an oak tray, in effect, and then some milled apples, and then some more straw, and then some milled apples, and so on, and build that up, and then put the pressure on. Obviously, long before the days of hydraulics, it would be a, a worm press that uh, would just screw down. The old thing about rats going in there isn't entirely fictitious. Old trees don't have much nitrogen in the fruit. And nitrogen is 
quite useful for a full fermentation. And protein, of course, is the best source of nitrogen. So in the farmhouse fat, they might put a piece of ham or beef and it would be dissolved and the nitrogen released and that would be um, uh, used by the yeasts to help improve the flavour of the cider. Well, they're not going to use some of their expensive beef or pork in the farm worker's cider. So the odd da dead cat or dead hen would go in there because you're talking about something sufficiently acidic and sufficient alcohol content that um, it'll kill any pathogen. And so it, it did happen and will be beautifully dissolved and improve the quality of the cider. This year we've had a baking summer followed by an incredibly wet July and August. Does that have an impact on the trees? It will, and I can't tell you what. Some varieties will like it. I mean, there's so many apple varieties. Um, I mean, in our small orchard, we've got 10 different varieties. Uh, Brown Snout and Harry Masters Jersey, Slack Me Girdle, The Ten Commandments, Yarlington Mill, um, Stembridge Cluster, and a few others. And um, they'll all benefit differently. It, it, it's one of the pleasures of a mixed orchard. Tell me, Bob, from your perspective, how has farming changed over your life? Well, I learned farming from my, uh, my father's knee and from college. And really, that wasn't long after the war. And it was all about maximising food production because we had to. Limited resources, the country had no money, couldn't afford to import food, and nor should it, because the rest of the world needed the food. And so everything, the emphasis was on maximising food production. Not very much thought given to the environment. There's such a change now. People's attitudes, even some dyed-in-the-wool farmers are beginning to realise that things do have to change not just through legislation, through their own desire, which is rather nice. We're not using fertilisers here. We don't use sprays. We're not organic, but we think about the grazing. Uh, we try and encourage the wildflowers rather than suppress them. It's, it's a nicer way of farming. It's a more enjoyable way of farming. So what's the future, Bob? What does it look like? Is it rosy? I am an optimist, so um, uh, I... I've got a feeling politicians will ruin it all before farmers do. The issues we've got to tackle, plastics and, and climate, of course, is of carbon. Um, and farming's got to play its part. If there can be the political will, and that's internationally, unfortunately, they're much bigger players than us. But I think it's up to each of us to, to do our bit and just hope that we take others along with us, both nationally and locally. Thank you so much, Bob. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much to Bob Honey. Now, next, we're going to a very different farm. Only a few acres, but within easy walking distance from the town centre, just below Prior Park. And there I caught up with Biddy, her goats, her sheep, her alpacas. And here's the first of her animals, Barry the goat. Yeah. And at the bottom of this field, right in front of me, right in front of me, it's a goat called... your trousers. This is Barry. Hello, Barry. You're eating my trousers. <laughs> yeah. And behind Barry, yeah. we have... Um, we've got Jorge, who's a chocolate brown alpaca. And behind him is Bungle, 
who is a creamy coloured alpaca with very beautiful dark brown eyes. In fact, they both have very beautiful eyes. And then next to them is Zippy, who has is cream coloured with blue eyes. And he's cream coloured and blue eyes because he's deaf. Or maybe he's deaf because he's cream coloured and has blue eyes. But he is very chilled and nothing spooks him except the dog which he can see. Whereas the other two can get quite worried if they can hear noises, they're not very sure what they are. So when did you first come here, Biddy? We arrived here in 1997, I think. One, did you did you come here as farmers? No, good heavens, no. No, my husband's a software developer and um, I, I was a freelance journalist. Yeah. So you've come down from London, you yeah. decided to come down to yeah, Bath yeah, yeah. and you decided to buy a house with three or four acres of land and yeah. some sheep. No, we didn't want the sheep and we didn't really want three or four acres of land either. We had like a list of requirements, as I suppose everybody who needs a house does. And we needed access to the station or we needed it to be close to the station because my husband was still doing a lot of work in London. And um, we needed schools nearby for the boys who were only little at the time. We didn't need a cider apple orchard. We didn't need three or four acres of, of land. But this house was pretty perfect in every other respect. And I had seen so many and there was a big rush on for, for houses we couldn't even rent anywhere. It was just impossible at the time. So when I saw this house, I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, we, we can we can sort out the sheep and the three or four acres. That's not really an issue. Um, it, it turned out to be a bit of a problem, only because I didn't really know what I was doing. And I thought, oh, well, sheep probably do need looking after, but I didn't know what to do. So how did you... How did you manage that then? How so, did you manage looking off? Because I think you had about 30 when you first yeah, moved here, yeah. didn't you? So How I, did you manage what to do? I, I worried about them a lot. And then I phoned Lackham Agricultural College and said, can you do anything for me? If you've got anything, any courses or anything about sheep management. And they thought it was hilarious that I turned up as a sort of, you know, middle-aged office worker and that I was trying to do things with sheep when all the... All the lovely students that they had were teenagers who'd been brought up on farms. So they knew, they, they could do it in their sleep. Uh, and they were, they were just brilliant. They were so lovely. All I could do was read the books. And actually, I did get an introduction to sheep keeping. And the first sentence was, sheep suffer from more illnesses than you can possibly number, <laughs> most of whose first symptom is death. <laughs> oh, well, there's not much you can do about that, is there? <laughs> no, no, that is very true. Yeah. So you must have learnt a lot about sheep keeping and yeah. animal husbandry. Yeah, and... a lot, a lot, a lot, actually. And, you know, um, with help over the years, it's very difficult managing to round up sheep that don't really want to be rounded up on your own. So um, the boys have been cajoled into coming and helping me and my husband as well and so friends. everyone agreed to move here on the basis that you were the farmer is that right yeah yeah no one was really interested <laughs> in doing anything with the sheep uh, but actually uh, it's worked out fine we stopped lambing and um, we gave some sheep away and just whittled them down just gradually we were just left with a, a lot of ewes who um, just just graze, that's all they have to do now. 
and they're quite sweet. How old do sheep get when you just have sheep and you're not breeding them for meat? So this year we lost an 18-year-old. And last year we lost a 17-year-old and we've got one who's skipping around now who must be at least 18 and she she looks perfectly chipper and like she could go on for another five years, but we'll see. And any plans for any more animals? No. No, that's it. I don't mind doing hens again. Hens are lovely. They're, they're very chirpy. They're very sociable creatures and... And very productive and great fun to watch. And actually, when we've had small children come here, that we, you know, they've been promised by their parents or my friends or whoever they are, you know, oh, let's go and see the alpacas. They're actually not really very interested in alpacas because I think they're quite big for a small child to get close to. And they're not like dogs and cats. You can't really just go up and pet them. They, they would sort of move away from you unless you did it carefully and I think children would prefer to have instant mm. gratification on that front but most kids make a beeline for the hens and they're super happy they can go and get the eggs out of the nesting box oh, yes. and yeah. some of the hens you, you can pick up and and just give them a little stroke and they're quite happy to be held and then because they have a little house it's all quite relevant you know you can you can see see how other animals live in in so little scale you know, yeah, suppose, scale, yeah, yeah. scalable yeah yeah. It's an extraordinary place you've got here. It's right in the heart of Bath. Ten minutes walk, you said, from Marks and Spencer. Ten minutes from Marks and Spencer's, yeah. yeah. We had ducks as well at one stage. And um, I said to one of the boys that, you know, you can, you can look after the ducks. And he was super good because I thought it would just be me that looked after the ducks. But he, he would say that they were his. But actually, he was really, really good and would go and check on them twice a day and feed them and make sure they're all all right. Unfortunately, the fox problem is quite a big one around here. Mm. So the ducks ended up being in the circle of life, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So let's just yeah. go and see Barry's yeah. mates. Yeah, Barry's He's got mates. a couple of brothers, has he, or something? Yeah, I don't know that they're brothers, but they all came... They were all born at the same time. Um, oh, he's very keen to show us, isn't yes, he? Yes, yes. I think he thinks maybe it's tea time. Oh, hello. This, this is Morris. Morris is... Hello, Morris. He's super sweet. We have to feed him separately because otherwise Barry will eat everybody's, including Morris's, and Morris won't even get a look in. Barry. And then Robin over there, you can see where we've got inspiration, the, the Bee Gees. I just got yeah. it. I just got it. Barry, Robin and, and Morris. Morris. Yeah. Oh, yes. um, and they're, they're super handsome boys, but um, this one thinks he's alpha, alpha male. They're very handsome, aren't they? And they've got yeah. two long, gorgeous, curvy horns, yeah. each of them, yeah. and long-haired coats, mm. but they're all quite small as well. Yeah, they're pygmies. They're pygmy goats. And I've always wanted pygmy goats. You've got walls, obviously, around, but people must poke their noses over and have a good look, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah. So that wall over there and this wall down by Rosemount Lane. Yeah, people look over and, you know, they bring their children and lift them up so they can see them. And um, there's a big red tourist bus goes past and every now and again you can see everybody <laughs> swivel their heads to look at the alpacas. So I think they must be on the agenda of, for the, um, the guided tour. We're not the only sheep up the road. There's another flock just a bit further up Ralph Allen Drive. 
There, there's the tourist bus just gone past. Oh yes, yeah, there yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 So shall we walk back up yeah, and have a look at the, we can go and look at the hens? Oh hello. They're very curious, the alpacas, aren't they? They do. They, they, they look at you and they want to know more. The sheep would have wandered away by now, wouldn't they? They're just, they don't even care. They're not even looking at us. But the alpacas are keeping a very close eye on what it is that we're doing. And I feel like you're getting the third degree from Zippy. <laughs> I really am. I'm getting the, the blue-eyed stare from you, my love. So what percentage of your time does it take to look after animals in an orchard? Somebody has to be around every morning to feed them and check on them. And then they need checking a couple of times a day, maybe. And when you go on holiday? Uh, we have a, a very lovely friend who comes and moves in, who used to be a farm manager. <laughs> How good is that? <laughs> you have yeah. made the right friends. Absolutely, yeah. He's, he's like, great. You can't take them to a cattery. No, no you? you really can't. No, you have to do it here. But, you know, whether you have one sheep or 50 sheep, they still all need to be checked and looked after and fed and made sure that they don't get into any trouble. Have they got into any trouble? Oh, uh, yeah, actually Bungle. Bungle, which is the white one. He's, he's the biggest of the three. And um, there's a ditch that goes all the way around the shed at the bottom of the field. He managed somehow to roll into it because they, they, they like rolling in mud, especially Zippy, actually, and couldn't roll back out again. So I found him with his legs kind of waving in the air, wedged in this ditch, and I couldn't get him out either. <laughs> so... I thought the only thing that I could do was phone a friend and meanwhile try and make the ditch a lot bigger by digging around. Oh, clever. Yeah, which it actually it took two of us to finally get him out. And it, it was very funny at the time. And actually, <laughs> my friend said, oh, please, can we take a picture of this? It's so funny. And I said, look, can we just get him out first? Because <laughs> I'm a bit worried. He looks so uncomfortable. Oh. He looks so uncomfortable. Zippy's got the most incredible eyes, hasn't he? Yeah. They're so blue, ice blue. Yeah, really very handsome. Such a beautiful boy. It's really changed the course of your life in a way, hasn't it? When I lost um, the last lot of hens went, that was a fox. I did wonder about whether or not to get any more. But I, I missed them. So the answer had to be, yes, I will get some more. Here they are. The cheeky girls. How many have you got? Just three. They're rescues. They turned up with not very many feathers. And they looked a bit sad. But they really, really, they look, they're very beautiful little brown hens now. Really beautiful. And they each have their own little characters. And... Um, have they got names? No, I don't name them anymore. <laughs> it's too sad. <laughs> They look like you've made an enclosure out of a, a tent. Um, it looks like a frame tent without the it does canvas bit, on. It? It's, it is actually a proper... It does look like a, a tent, but it came with netting, so we just attached the netting around it. Because there's, there's been a problem with avian flu. You can't... Oh, yes. uh, and I think there will be for the next few years. So I anticipate that come October, they will all have to go back undercover again. And they'll be undercover for six months which is a long time, so having something semi-permanent like this actually works quite well. Yes. And then they've got their 
their run and their nesting box inside. So do you feel that you're part of the farming community? Not really, I, because I'm not a commercial farmer. I mean, I'm, I'm just really an animal. I just like having animals. Did you grow up with any animals? No, I had gerbils as a child and a cat later, but nothing, nothing more than that. You know, it's not what you're used to, it's what you, what you feel comfortable with, I suppose, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. And um, it's a kind of quirk of fate for you that, that this house came on the market when you were yeah, desperate exactly. for somewhere yes. to live. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it was, you know, meant to be. Thanks there to Biddy. Now, in our first feature, we heard quite a bit from Bob about how farmers are beginning to embrace more regenerative farming. So let's hear more now about how farming is changing nationally. The government agency DEFRA is rolling out a raft of new schemes and grants to help all aspects of the environment, including biodiversity, sustainable agriculture, soil management, water quality and improving natural flood management. And the organisation which helps farmers locally is called the Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group, more commonly known as FWAG. I met up with one of their senior farm environment advisors, Mark Smith. One of his jobs is to help farmers apply for these new stewardship schemes. And I asked him if he thought the government policy changes were going in the right direction. I'm optimistic now that things will change. You know, if I go back five, six years or more then you know it was a real struggle to introduce measures on farmland that were going to help biodiversity species and habitats um you will always have those sort of early adopters and there's always been a a core of farmers that signed up to stewardship schemes many many years ago 20 years ago or more and have always been doing something for biodiversity to sort of you know help help biodiversity on on their land but now you know there's almost going to be exponential growth I guess because most farmers will apply for some sort of stewardship scheme and there are a whole range of those now and we've you know previously we've only had one or one scheme that includes two elements maybe but now there are various schemes um, that people can sign up to so I'm optimistic I mean, pollinators, well, pollinators has been a focus for um, six or seven years now, but it's very simple on, on some farm types to provide the resources that pollinators need. And it's the same for farmland birds. It's, it's, quite, a, it's quite easy for them to do. So what do they need? Uh, pollinators or birds? Well, both. <laughs> well um, pollinators obviously need pollen and nectar from flower-rich habitats. Uh, and so there are a range of things that farmers can do. And with every stewardship application I do on an arable farm, we always include some sort of flower-rich habitat. Whether that is is something that's replicating a species-rich meadow, or we have specific pollen and nectar seed mixes that farmers can establish to, to provide those resources. Those habitats, the flower-rich habitats, are really good for farmland birds because um, they attract a huge amount of insects. And of course, birds need to uh, the insects over the breeding season to, to feed their young. Uh, and then the other key thing for, for birds, really, is a winter seed source. A lack of a winter seed source is one of the main reasons why farmland bird numbers have declined in the last sort of 30 years or so. But again, it is something 
quite easy for farmers to do. They just need to grow seed-bearing crops. But of course, that is taking land out of production. So they need some sort of compensation. And that's where stewardship schemes come in. Got it. Got it. So tell me, what crop would a bird, farmland bird, most like to be grown? Uh, Well, there isn't one, really. So, uh, well, if we go up onto the Cotswolds, sort of above Bath, there's corn bunting up there. So they obviously like corn. So, um, you know, sort of wheat, barley seed. But generally what we try to do is um, have a seed mix that has a range of different seed-bearing crops in it so that you're providing bigger seeds like barley um, down to really small seeds, quinoa or so those sorts of crops. So they, you know, they have five or six different types of seed in, in the mixture. Thinking about climate change, what changes do you think we'll get to see in farming due to that? How is it going to affect us here around Bath? So what we've had over the last few years is very dry springs. So with some arable crops, with cereal-based arable crops, they're either sown in very early autumn or in the spring. But of course, if you're putting a spring-based crop in and you've got no moisture, then it doesn't grow. And so that impacts on the yield you're, you're going to get. And then this summer, of we, as we moved into the summer proper, it's just been wet. So that's affected arable farmers because they can't combine wet crops. The crops have to be dry. Grain needs to be at a certain moisture content. But also it, it has a huge impact on uh, livestock farmers as well. So warm and wet is great for growing grass, but if it's if there's too much wet, you can't cut the grass and make silage or hay or whatever you're going to make with that grass. So it's definitely having an impact now, but how that will change, I don't know. <laughs> so what's life like for farmers now? Is the climate making things a little more difficult? I think that, I think it probably is, but they're a really innovative bunch farmers and they're very good at problem solving and coming up with things to, you know, help them continue to do what they, you know, what they do, really. Lots of examples, I guess. I, I, I think so recently, probably eight or nine years ago, um, there was a ban on neonicotinoid chemicals. Uh, and that had a huge impact on farmers growing oilseed rape because you need the neonicotinoids to control flea beetle, um, which can devastate crops. So in the first few years after the the ban on that chemical, crops were just getting devastated by flea beetle, hugely reduced yields. But through research and trial and error, farmers have come up with sort of more natural ways, I guess, to to grow that crop. So they're doing things now with companion cropping, so growing another crop in with the oilseed rape, and that crop deters flea beetle. Uh, And and there's, you know, lots lots of other sort of methods that... um, they've come up with and they've managed to sort of work around that ban um, which is great you know neonicotinoids are pretty potent chemicals so we don't really want them in the wider environment so if they can grow crops and not use those then that's fantastic we talked about them being innovative with neonicotinoid bans but there's become this realization in the farming community that a lot of their systems weren't sustainable So alongside all these new stewardship schemes coming in that are going to help, farmers are are really looking at their systems and what they can do to make them more sustainable. And probably a lot of people out there would have heard the term regenerative agriculture. And that's been going on, I guess, for 
five, six, seven, eight years now. So farmers really looking at what they're doing and saying, okay, we need to change. Let's see how we can go on that journey and, and make our, our farms more sustainable. Give me an example of what that would mean. What, what changes might they have to make? So regenerative agriculture is, is mainly about the soil and soil health and, and providing that healthy soil. The problem with some arable crop rotations is that they're too simplistic and they're taking loads of stuff out of the soil, organic matter being one of the key ones, and not putting it back in. So the soil degrades and degrades and degrades. But with regenerative agriculture, they look at that and look at, okay, what can we do? So they're introducing a wider crop rotation. So rather than having two different crops that they grow, wheat and oilseed rate, I guess is an example of that, very simple rotational system, they're including, you know, three, four, five different crop types. And that just helps rebuild soil health. Um, so things like arable farmers are growing herbal lays now because that's really good for the soil. Uh, they're growing lots of legumes which produce nutrients themselves, their own nitrogen, so they then don't have to put those inputs onto the soil. So they're growing crops to plough back into the soil rather than putting in chemicals and fertilisers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. You're getting much better soil structure. You're introducing more organic matter into the system. Your soil biology is healthy rather than you're piling on loads of artificial fertiliser or, or sprays or whatever it may be. And that you know soil health um, just declines when you do that. And so they're really, really looking at it. And it's, yeah, just keeping... Keeping the land green, I guess, is one thing. So when farmers harvest a crop, so wheat in the summer, uh, if that's then going into a spring crop after that, then in years gone by, you, you know, in the winter, probably half of our land was brown because it had been ploughed and left over the winter. But now we're protecting that soil and using cover crops to protect the soil, stop it from eroding, getting into watercourses, introducing nutrients and that also helps to suck up any nutrients that are left in the soil so those don't wash through in the winter into into, into watercourses. So, yeah, it's really good. And, and going back to sort of more of a mixed farming system, I guess, is the ideal. So you've got livestock and arable crops. But that's a really, really difficult thing to do for a lot of people because they haven't got the infrastructure they need for, you know, housing cattle or whatever it may be in the in the winter months um, but it's really exciting time in agriculture for me I have to say you know it's, it's fantastic what's happening it's it's really good we're definitely going in the right direction now what a great place to end thank you so much Mark for your time and we've had the company of your beautiful spaniel Luna all the way through who's itching for you to play with her yes thanks very much thanks so much to Mark Smith Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. Don't forget you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Barscape, visit the website barscape.co.uk. Thanks too to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I'll see you next month.